Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. How do we navigate across Asia's very different equity markets? There are thousands of stocks to pick up in Asia. And he says, unlike in the U.S., where you can buy a broad-based market ETF and do okay over the long run, in Asia, you need to be much more active, dig deeper into specific stories and specific sectors. So which are currently on his radar? He is the author of a phenomenal book that we've actually dived deep into right here on this show. The book is called Asia's stock markets. He's head of equity strategy Asia-Pacific for HSBC. He's another flying Dutchman. I have another one with me on air today. The other is in the studio next door, but this one speaks seven languages and is the renowned equity strategist. Harold van der Linde, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Harold, you've been in Asia for over 30 years, but you arrived as a backpacker from Holland. Uh, who would you say was you know, pivotal in terms of helping you understand how to research and analyze stocks here? Probably my very first boss, a, a Malaysian Chinese guy, who sat down with, and told me how to start analyzing stocks and showed me how things worked. Uh, that was a long time ago, 1995, I think it was. I had uh, studied economics, backpacked around Asia, thought, I want to stay here, I love this place. And yeah, needed to learn how to look at markets. And he was the guy who uh, held my hand and um, showed me the way, you could say. Fantastic. What has been the most important lesson on investing in Asia that you think most investors miss? I think exactly what you mentioned earlier on. The belief is, or and the belief is true, that in the U.S. you just buy something for the lower run and it will go up, and that's fine. That that works in the U.S. But that investment strategy doesn't work as well. It does work, but it doesn't work as well in Asia. I think in Asia you need to be a little bit more um, trades between uh, markets and a little bit more nimble at uh, at times. Um, so if there's one lesson I think that people should take is, is uh, yeah, trade on sentiment. If, if sentiment is really poor. Then you say, okay, maybe I'll buy into it. And if the sentiment is really positive and even your hairdresser says, listen, you're going to buy stocks today, uh-huh. uh, then maybe uh, you say, uh, time to get out. Let's get your view on the big picture, Harold. Economists expect Fed officials uh, to forecast that their key rate could go as high as 4% by the end of this year. And they're also likely to signal Mm. additional increases in 2023, perhaps to as high as roughly 4.5%. I think a big question that markets Mm. are trying to figure out is just how much pain are central bankers willing to risk or inflict on the economy in order to bring down inflation? What do you say? Absolutely. And I think this is uh, probably one of the big issues uh, for, uh, for Asian stock markets. How far can the Fed go? We, we don't have to wait until the Fed starts cutting rates mm-hmm. in Asian markets to say let's become a bit more constructive. What we need to see is a signal from the Fed or an idea from the Fed or maybe some of the language that we're not far off from the peak. If, if, if the Fed would come out and say uh, we're going to do two more rate hikes of 25, that's it. They're not going to come out to do that. But if we would have that impression, at least then we could say, okay, now we can price it in. Uh, that, I think, would be, uh, that, w- that would be positive. And at the moment, we just don't know. And, um, yeah, we're a little bit, uh, you would say, fumbling in the dark. It's still foggy. And that uh, creates an uncertainty that hangs over markets. 
One of the things that's unique about your book and that I really enjoyed was how you weave history into our understanding of the vastly different stock markets here in Asia. And if we take a page out of the history book and go back to the last time inflation was really out of control in the U.S., how high did the Fed have to raise interest rates back in the 70s to control inflation then, do we know? Yeah, they, they raised interest rates very substantially and stock markets came down very substantially. But remember, in the 70s, things were so different. I mean, there was no Chinese stock market in the 70s. Mm. Most Asian stock markets hadn't really uh, emerged yet. I mean, they were around, but they were tiny, small. Not a lot of people were looking at it. So we're living in vastly different circumstances. And I think sometimes if, if you are a, not a professional investor, you're not on it day to day, Sometimes the way to maybe think about these markets is to think about it in terms of sentiment. If sentiment is really, really poor and everybody says, oh my God, stock market is down, and that might be a time for you to say, okay, let's, this is good to come in because valuations will be low. And, and if everybody tells you to buy stocks and they go up and it seems like it's a big party out there, then you might say, hey, let me be a little bit more careful. That, that's maybe a good approach to, uh, to stock markets instead of analyzing exactly what happened in the past. Because sometimes that... That worked for us, but it also is not always easy in Asia because Asia was so vastly different at the time. Mm -hmm. When it comes to sentiment, you do hear a lot of people saying, you know, we expect growth to be a major driver in this economy. Um, But I've read interviews where you say looking at growth is not by itself is not enough for successful investing in Asia. Why is that? Absolutely. So we are sometimes a bit too much focused on what happens now with growth in in markets. I'm not saying that growth is not important. Growth is important. But also future growth is important. But what is also important and equally important is simply what happens with interest rates. And and, uh, actually we look at bond yields in markets because that reflects markets' expectations of interest rates. But let's not get too technical about that. They were just interest rates. So people say, oh, growth is bad this year. That would be bad for stocks, for example. Yeah, that is probably not good for stocks. But what happens with interest rates? If interest rates would come down, that is a positive for stocks. So you need to balance these things off. And this is, and I try to in the book as well, it's really markets are a tug of war between growth, but not just today's growth, but also future growth on the one hand, and on the other hand, interest rates. Now, at the moment, growth in Asia is not so good. And interest rates, we just spoke about it. The Fed is still raising interest rates. So both of them are actually working against us. So that's not, that's not good. It is one of the reasons why Asian markets are, are down. But we might well go into late this year or 2020, uh, 2023, when both of these factors are starting to work for us. Uh, interest rates start to come down. The Fed has maybe peaked at some point in time. China, we already see a recovery in growth. And then you can say, hey, across the region, things start to look better again. And then those forces work uh, work in favor of us. So this is how really to think about markets, a tug of war between growth, today's growth, but also future growth on the one hand and, and, and interest rates on the other on the other hand. There's an HSBC report um, that shows where funds with explicit mandate to invest in Asia, how they're positioning. Can we talk a little bit about global funds? Are they trimming their exposure to China significantly? No. I would actually say it's a little bit the opposite side. So most funds have already turned their positions mm-hmm. in, uh, in China. Broadly speaking, I'd say, I think the trend was late last year that people 
uh, let's buy, they wanted to buy into China, but then earlier this year, the lockdowns came, uh, oil prices went up because of the Ukraine and Russia conflict, and people thought, oh, this, this is not working very good. Uh, inflation, interest rates are going to go higher, and the growth uh, in, in Asia is not going to be as good. So these two factors I mentioned earlier, they're working against us. So they took money out again. But I'm actually calling in from, from Dubai, as you know, uh, at the moment, I'm in the Middle East to talk to uh, clients. I was in Singapore, I was in Europe, I'm going to go to the US. So I've actually seen something like 60, 70 clients over the last couple of weeks. And broadly speaking, I think sentiment is shifting again. A lot of people are looking into 2023 and say, hey, uh, just what I mentioned earlier, hey, uh, it could well be that growth in China is recovering, interest rates will peak at some point in time, maybe we're not far off. There might be a time when suddenly things look pretty interesting in, in Asia again. So a lot of people say, ooh, I, I need to prepare myself for that. I've cut my exposure in, uh, in Asia. They're underweight, but they, they want to move a little bit back so that they can't get caught out uh, if suddenly sentiment in markets starts to turn. Interesting. In just a little less than a month from today, China's Communist Party will meet for their twice-a-decade Congress. And that's widely expected mm. to endorse President Xi Jinping for an unprecedented third term. So the run-up to the Congress is traditionally a bullish period for Chinese markets. But this time around, many analysts that we speak with say they think the Chinese market will not receive a pre-Congress boost uh, because of the country's COVID-0 policies and the property slump. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think we've got to look at the underlying fundamentals. And in China, things are actually improving in China. We had a big lockdowns, of course, in, in places such as Shanghai a couple of months ago. Since then, it does look, if you look at, for example, traffic data, the number of cars on the roads and electricity consumption, what we call high-frequency data, stuff that comes out regularly. It shows us the economic activity. Things are improving in, in China Normally, in the past, and this is five and ten years ago, we saw that they were stimulating the economy and so that everything was really good at the time that Congress would take place. But this time around, things are completely different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, sometimes it's good to look at history, but you've got to understand that this time around, it is different. This time, we have COVID. We didn't have that in the past. So that changes the whole situation. So in that sense, I don't think the stimulus is going to be as good. Also, China is shifting towards a new growth model. It wants to emphasize look at and focus on high-end tech and food and, and these sort of things, and renewables, and move away. And that also impacts the sort of policy stimulus that they put in place. But if you look at the underlying data, in uh, particularly in China, yeah, things are slowly recovering in, uh, in, in that country. So, uh, yeah, it's different this time around, but we shouldn't necessarily be too negative either. If we look at the numbers, the Shanghai Composite Index down nearly 15% since the beginning of the year. Shenzhen mm. Composite doing even worse, of 25%. So what needs to happen to stem the slide, Harold? Well, this, this comes back to uh, what I mentioned uh, also in, in, in the book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about tug of war. Think about earnings now and in the future on the one hand and the interest rate. So... It's down because the earnings were down. Uh, that's driven to a large extent by COVID and lockdowns, of course. Uh, but as I mentioned, that, that seems to gradually improve. We, we probably need to see more of that so that some confidence of recovering growth comes back. And on the other hand, we need to see interest rates move in the right direction as well. And as mentioned earlier on, that, that's not really the case yet. So we're a little bit in between. We're, we're moving towards a, a better environment that's where interest rates are going to move a little bit lower as well but we're not really there yet that's uh, 
we're stuck a little bit in between in, in, in that sense. The Chinese yen is also coming under a lot of pressure. The offshore yen falling to mm. less than seven vis-a-vis the US dollar. What impact do you expect this will have on China's economy? And could it be good for the share prices of exporters? Yeah, no, I mean, in, in a normal circumstances, um, the countries that have weak economic growth could see their currency fall a little bit, and that, 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 that actually allows them to grow a little bit again. Uh, the exporters are in a better position, their products are cheaper for anybody who's outside of their country and wants to buy them now. So that currency depreciation is, tends to be good for exporters, um, and, so is, uh, and so it is for China. Now, this is not just because China is allowing it to do so, but if you look across the region, in particular, of course, yen currencies are rather weak. I actually think China is still acting as a sort of anchor in the region. Its currency has come down a little bit, but not a lot, and that, that creates stability in the region. It is the big currency we all need to watch, and that one is, is depreciated a lot, uh, a little bit. That makes sense from an economic point of view, but it's, it's not fallen. It's, not, it's, it's, it's rather stable in that sense as well, and that creates stability for uh, most of the other currencies in the region, and that impacts the equity market again as well. That provides a little bit of an anchor, I would actually, uh, I would actually say. But yeah, you're right. It's uh, on the margin good for uh, some of the exporters out there that uh, um, produce in China and sell into the U.S., Europe. Uh, the problem for them, of course, is that demand there might not be so strong, but uh, that's a whole different ballgame altogether. Let's look at how funds are adjusting their positions across Asia. Thailand, according to an HSBC report, has received record inflows this year, reversing from five years of outflows. In which sectors is their interest? I think in Thailand, a large part of the Thai economy is driven by tourism. And of course, with COVID, that has collapsed. And it is starting to come a little bit back. I understand that a lot uh, a lot of Indians are actually traveling to Thailand. China would eventually open up. That would be good for Thailand as well. And I heard some of my Singaporean friends saying, well, you know, tickets to Europe are quite expensive. Uh, maybe we go to Thailand instead in, uh, in December. So um, some tourists are coming back. That would be good for the kind of small and mid-sized companies in, in Thailand. Eh? The, the companies that sell uh, rent to scooters or have a Thai restaurant uh, close to a beach resort or the mall operators and these sort of companies. And yeah, the way to play that is that you buy those sorts of companies, uh, of com- companies of exposure to it. So you think about uh, hotel sector and restaurant sector and uh, the banking sector and uh, consumer uh, retail companies. And these, these sort of sectors is, uh, is where, where you get exposure to that recovery in, in tourism in, in Thailand. So that's where you've got to look for so your report says over the past month, funds appear to have trimmed exposure to ASEAN, Korea and Hong Kong equities to add to markets where they're underweight like mainland China, India and Taiwan. Can you share with us some sectors in Asia that most interest you at the moment? Perhaps you could talk about India. You're right. What we've seen is that we've seen fund flows from, say, North Asia into ASEAN and into India over the course of the last let's say nine months or something like that. Mm. India saw initially a lot of selling as people wanted to go back into China, but as that reversed, I mentioned that earlier on, they actually, uh, we saw flows going back into India. And in India, there's actually quite a few sectors that that people want to talk about. There are, the consumer sector uh, is is something that comes up in conversations I have, but also the investment sector, uh, so that means construction and, and these sort of things. That, that comes up in, in, yeah, in conversations on India. It's really the domestic oriented sectors that, uh, that for the moment people are mostly interested in. And are you still overweight Hong Kong? We are across the region, there's certain areas that we, we like, and we are currently 
overweight on uh, on Hong Kong. That is correct. All right. And on China as well. Well, thank you very much, Harold. We're out of time or we pick your brains some more. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Have a good day, Michelle. Bye-bye. Helping us navigate Asian stock markets this morning. Harold van der Linde is head of equity strategy, Asia-Pacific HSBC. He's also author of a great book, Asia Stock Markets from the Ground Up. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you for being with me here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg. Or download our audio app, that's A-W-E-D-I-O, available on Google Play or the App Store.